Okay, well, this is the moment of truth. Rich, I have three whites in front of me. I'm a little bit nervous, but it's mostly excitement, really, because I've got to, for the other Richard, I've got to prepare, what, how many pages of notes? I think we sort of agreed you were going to write an essay on oh each one. How acidic is it? Are you getting real fizz of acidity? No. No, I'm not. Four pounds <gasps> and 99 pence. The Riesling is. That is absolutely extraordinary. Little by little, you're making great strides. <laughs> Plenty on the nose. Plenty of what on the nose? Right, yeah. Oh, it's red fruit. Uh, oh, dear, oh, dear. Red fruit, black fruit conundrum. This comparison thing is such fun. It really is. I can only say this should be the claret. And it is. Oh, my word. Shit, I've forgotten which is which. I'm going to go for it. One is South African, two is the Chianti. Excellent. Wrong. Oh! <laughs> no, it was so close. Oh! You're not quite at distinction level. You're beyond the ordinary pass. Oh, I'll take that. Can we really feel two things? The price, because remember, price and value are two different things. Does this taste like a wine that's twice the monetary price of the other wines? And do we feel it's better value in terms of quality? I look forward to hearing your feedback on the wines, Oliver. So here we are, and Richard Banfield has joined us. We know all about Richard and what he does for Lidl, and what an interesting character he is, and hopefully we're going to learn a little bit more about him through this conversation. But as this episode is all about wine value, and that doesn't mean cheap, and it, it doesn't mean the most outstanding, Richard B., when we say value in wine, what does that actually mean to you, someone who's uh, an, an expert in this? I think, Oliver, you've made the key point already that value isn't necessarily about price. Value is about much more than price. It's the ratio between quality and price. And I would say you can find value in class growth claret and you can find value under £5 in a shop like Lidl. Value is all relative. And I, I see my role as a master of wine, partly, and as a communicator about wine, my biggest challenge is finding wines that taste like the most expensive wines in the world, but cost half as much. And that, to my mind, is value, because it's, it's relative. But as I say, you can find that value at, at all price points for me. It doesn't really matter. I can demonstrate that. If you look at the, the shelves of supermarkets in the UK, you can find wines at under five pounds, which I would argue offer value because they're still good wines. You can find good wines at under five pounds. But if you pay a little bit more, if you go to eight, nine pounds, you might find wines with a bit more personality, a bit more character, maybe better definition of their provenance or their grape variety. You can find Cote de Rhone, for instance, that have many of the characteristics of a Chateauneuf de Pape. The Chateauneuf de Pape costs 20 pounds, the Cote de Rhone might only cost seven or eight. So that, to my mind, is value. Value is it's a relative concept, and you need to put it in the context of the, the category as a whole. Is there a sort of, a sort of Goldilocks zone? A wine is, is, is good enough to um, excite my taste buds, which are becoming more and more mature, but it's not so expensive that I can't really appreciate it, as my palate is not sophisticated enough. Is that fair to say, without being too hard on myself? I always think it's quite difficult to calibrate your palate with one single wine. Now you're going to think that I'm saying this as an excuse for me to have several bottles open at any one time in my house, but I do. It's the way I taste. My job is wine tasting. I, I do an awful lot of wine tasting at home, so I do always have several different bottles open. But even if I didn't, when I was a Master of Wine student, I would have more than one wine bottle open at any one time. Understanding value, understanding differences in quality is all about comparisons. Before we came on air, Richard was talking about Chablis and Chablis Premier Cru, which I understand you've covered in a, a previous podcast. And you taste a Chablis Premier Cru, which may only be seven or eight pounds more than the Chablis, or 20% more expensive, but you're conscious of a leap in quality. You can tell. And this is the advantage of tasting wine side by side. 
So I would recommend to anyone who's trying to understand their palate, understand quality, appreciate the factors that contribute to quality and value, taste wines in context, taste them against their peers. That means in practice, that might, might mean tasting side by side, you know, a less expensive Chardonnay from uh, Bulgaria for the sake of argument, maybe something slightly more expensive from a, a lightly oak Chardonnay from Chile, and then maybe a, a Macon Village or a Bourgogne Chardonnay from Burgundy. And you taste those side by side and you understand the differences between them in style and you can equate that to what the wines cost. Now it may be that when you do that you find that actually your palate and your taste, your subjective judgment on the wines doesn't fall in line with the price. You might find you actually prefer the less expensive one. That's fine. In that case, you found a bargain and you're happy. I think we learn this way. And as wine professionals, we're, we're taught to assess wines as objectively as possible. And I, I think the WSET has done a wonderful job of giving us the tools and the systematic approach to do that. However, with the best one in the world, you can't ignore the fact that we are all different. We do have different palettes, we do have different perceptions, and it is inevitable we're going to reach different conclusions about certain wines. However, objectively, we're trained to taste. So, it, when you do a tasting yourself at home, if you find that your your findings don't necessarily correspond to the pricing of the products doesn't mean you're a bad taster doesn't mean you're wrong just means that different wines are showing themselves differently and the more we taste the more we compare the more we learn the more the greater our memory and recollection of wine then the you know i think the more we understand both our own palate and how our own palate fits in with the wider wine universe well, I can understand why Richard chose you, Richard, because you've got this similar sort of comforting way of talking about wine, and my level of anxiety goes down listening to you as it does listening to Richard L, because I think, yes, this all makes perfect sense, and it's, it's just practice and enjoyment, and it, it's not a chore. It's a wonderful journey, if you like, of experimentation and, and discovery. And when we did the, um, the, the Riesling tasting, I was hugely intimidated by that, and yet I did find two I liked, Two I didn't really like that much, and then a couple that I was um, um, averse to. And, and I did exactly what you said. It was had nothing to do with how much the price was. And also, or more importantly, what you did is you became aware just in an hour or two in that reasoning tasting of the different styles afforded by that great variety, which is something that, you know, as consumers, that is something we don't often are able to, as Richard was saying, if we can taste side by side a bit, it can just open up a little more of a window into what's going on to be less intimidated about what wine is. And that's what you did. You're not intimidated by Riesling now because we spent two hours doing Riesling. And uh, my wife and I had a bottle uh, over the weekend and it was absolutely, didn't last long. It was absolutely delicious. And has that, has that experience, Oliver, has that helped you understand your own preferences for Riesling in terms of style, in terms of whether you prefer drier, sweeter, medium, any particular regions, different age? I'm just wondering because I think that's key if you do something like that we can't all be expected to remember every wine we taste and drink obviously but I think when you find wines you either particularly like or particularly dislike it is worth finding a way of remembering them because that's how we build up our our own personal uh, memory bank of wines we can do that in different ways I mean when I was young I did it longhand. I kept a note in a book of all the wines I'd tasted and I gradually built up my memory bank that way and as a, as a student I would refer to those notes. These days you might use an app like Vivino or you might use another app where you can take a picture of the bottle and you can uh, memorize it that way. For me it's digital, so Vivino I use and I'll make notes in that. Um, I, I find it very hard to remember it off the cuff, so I normally have to make a record of it. But in answer to your question, yes, I definitely understood what I liked in the reasoning world and what I didn't like and, and what I sort of quite liked. And what it did for me, it opened my eyes, that a single grape um, from a single country, I think actually no, it's multiple countries, but anyway, a single grape could be so, so much variety uh, in tastes uh, and that was a real eye-opener, and, and the fact that I could tell 
as well. That I didn't have to be a wine expert, I had to be a human being with human taste buds. It was the only equipment I needed to be able to draw those distinctions. The other thing that came from your um, original comments on value was this notion that you can start with a relatively simple wine and go that's quite nice and it costs you five or six pounds how on earth do you find wines that can retail at that level is incredible to me looking at the little wine list but then you can almost graduate and experiment with other wines up the price list sort of using the price list as a kind of guide but only a proxy for value not an absolute guide of value but a proxy for value you can use the wisdom of the buyer and you can you can do it that way if you're buying all wines from the same retailer. Funny enough, I think the one of the easiest ways to do this is actually to use the producer's own marketing techniques. So let me explain. So I used to work for an Australian wine company, Brown Brothers, and I used to work for them in the 1990s. And in those days, Australian wine was becoming well-established in the UK. And they had what they called ladder brands. And the supermarkets loved this. So if you took a brand like Rosemount or Lindemann's or Penfolds or Jacobs Creek, they would have their simple, easy-drinking blend, which was normally a Semillon Chardonnay or a Shiraz Cabernet. And that would be at the lower end of the price point. That would be the lower rung on the ladder. Then they would move up to a single varietal. And the single varietal might be from a smaller area. So if the blend was from Southeast Australia, the single varietal Cabernet or Shiraz or Chardonnay might be from Padthaway or Barossa Valley or whatever it might be. And then they would move up to single vineyard. Okay? And so they'd have the, they developed this ladder, multi-regional blend, single varietal, single vineyard and then ultimately they would have an icon brand at the top so they developed this sort of ladder and it meant that you could actually taste four wines from the same producer and see how the producer saw the progression in quality within a different grape or region or whatever it might be and that was actually really helpful in terms of training your own palate whether you agreed with them or not but also seeing what the producer saw as added value at each level and part of the added value was provenance and part of the added value was uh, was price because obviously you were going up in price at the same time and even now you can do that you can go with uh, particularly with Australian brands you can go into a shop and you might find Jacobs Creek or McGuigan or a brand like that at two or three different price points and so you can taste the same grape or blend of grapes at different quality levels from the same producer. Richard, just this leads us beautifully into your, your role at uh, Little. I mean, just to uh, uh, be clear here, you're not the buyer, you're a consultant for Little. And one thing you do a lot of, obviously, we, uh, your name appears on many Little wines. You have the Banfield rating score, correct me if I'm wrong, generally between 80 and 100, which I guess chimes in with the general rating score for wines where in the premium world of wines we're generally sort of 90 to 100 so I'm guessing most little wines are in the 80 to 90 range is that right? That's true we use the widely recognized 100 point system um, which is recognized worldwide and that's why we use it because it's yeah, it's, it's the one that most people are most familiar with. A bit like FIFA? Uh, in a way <laughs> I don't think it's perfect but it, it serves a purpose the, the, the key at point of sale, the key is giving the shopper more cues to help them buy the right wine. In practice, on the 100-point scale, if a wine scores less than 80, the, the retailer probably won't use the score. But if it scores over 80, normally they will. And if you've got two wines next door to each other on the shelf at a similar sort of price, and one scores 83 and the other one scores 90, well, that uh, that's information that the... That's data that the, the shopper can usefully use. So brilliant to look at the, the list of wines on Little's website and to be reminded in terms of, we're not necessarily talking value, I appreciate that, but in terms of inexpensive entry points into wine. I spotted a wine the other day, even listening to Jaws, my screen reader on my computer saying £3.29 for a, for a... And I was thinking, hang on, £3.29 for a bottle, whether it was Pinot Grigio or whatever it was, doesn't matter... My first thought was, hang on, nearly £3 of that is tax. Can we really be finding serious consumer uh, in terms of some quality of wine for something that effectively 90% of the money is going to the tax man in the UK? I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's not at 329 that the value lies. 
we do regular uh, blind consumer tastings uh, with Lidl where we we serve, say, four wines, with the most expensive being something like the Saint-Emilion Grand Cru, which is about £14 or £13 on the shelf, and the cheapest being a Pinotage from South Africa, which I think we now sell at about four forty-nine. And it is amazing how often people prefer the Pinotage at four forty-nine. It's good wine at four forty-nine. That is value, much better value, I would argue, than the wine at three twenty-nine. I love the way that both you and the other Richard have just extracted the snobbery out of wine. It's so, it makes it so it makes me feel so much more comfortable and at home. There's no snobbery or elitism. It's just the desire that you both seem to have is to connect people with the wine that's going to give them most pleasure, which is rather lovely. Totally, totally agree with all of that. I mean, in my teaching at WCT School London, some of the students that come in, I've noticed particularly the evening courses I teach, often you have middle-aged folks walking over London Bridge from the City of London who think they know a bit about wine and they've got a bit of money. And they get a bit snooty sometimes about some of the uh, less expensive wines that we show. And they almost, sometimes I hear them laughing at them and I, I get very, very cross. And I say, come on, guys, this wine, this supermarket Chilean Merlot is a far more important wine than your Centimillion um, Premier Grand Cru, whatever. Not least because, you know, it's made in volume and it's going to affect more people's lives than the few people that are going to taste that, that elitist wine. Don't get me wrong, I love fantastic wine. We all love wine, but the point is, and this is Richard's ethos, clearly, with, with, his work, with your work, Richard, a, a little, is that wine absolutely can be appreciated at all levels. Richard, I think there's, a, there's an easy answer to that to my mind, and I genuinely believe this. And this is something that every master of wine has to learn. It's critical is that in order to appreciate really good wine, you have to understand what less good wine tastes like. Otherwise, you have, no, you have no comparison, you have no control, no starting point. Anybody who genuinely wants to learn about wine must know what inexpensive wine tastes like. Otherwise, there's no point. You, otherwise, you, you, every, if you only drink Chateau Lafitte every day, then you you know that's fine but it's ultimately it's going to be unfulfilling because you don't actually appreciate how good it is you only appreciate the Chateau Lafitte if you also know what the Chilean Merlot tastes like okay and even then you may find you prefer the Chilean Merlot to the Chateau Lafitte just because it's a hundred times the price doesn't make it better wine okay so we have to remember that it's all about context and I, in all the tastings I do, for public and professionals, I make sure that we look at wines, less expensive wines, as well as more expensive wines. Because it's only by the comparison that we really learn. This is why I struggled all the way through the 90s with Tottenham Hotspur, Rich. So I could enjoy, <laughs> so I could enjoy the glory years, so relatively. We must ask Richard, finally, for some recommendations from Lidl, because... What Oliver and I are going to do, on the back of Richard's advice here and, this, and everything he said this evening, is pop off to Lidl, grab a few bottles at different price points and start tasting some of these things and getting our palates hopefully tuned in with value, be that price point low, medium or high. So Richard, any, any recommendations? So in the current wine tour, you know the little wine shells, I would say split in two. So the bottles that are standing up on the shelf are the wines that are there all the year round. In the crates, the wooden crates, you've got bottles that are lying down. Those crates, normally, and above it, there's a picture of me, and it says, wine tour. And with the wine tour, it says, when it's gone, it's gone. And those are wines that come in for just two months. Okay, and we rotate that six times a year. The core range is much smaller than other supermarkets, um, only just over 100 wines, which I argue, would argue is a good thing because it makes it easier to make a choice if you've got a smaller selection to choose from. By and large, the wine tour, the price point will be set slightly higher than in the core range. So the wines I'm going to recommend to you are actually a combination of the two. And so in the core range, I think wine's worth looking out for. There is a, uh, I mentioned this Pinotage from South Africa. Okay, it's just our Cimarosa Pinotage. Okay, you'll be surprised. Quite a lot of wine. Moving up a little bit, we've got a Chianti Reserva. And the Chianti Reserva in the core range is only, it's 6.49 now. And it's extraordinary. 
It is complex, it's mature, it's got tertiary characters, it's real wine at 6.49. It's astonishing. And in the reds, I would also pick out the Saint-Emilion Grand Cru at, maybe it's 12.99 now. It's proper wine, again. It's a proper Saint-Emilion Grand Cru, it tastes like it, really nicely balanced. It will improve with age, as any young Bordeaux will. There's a white from the core range that I'd recommend as well, and that's the uh, Mosul Riesling, which uh, is 4.99. Cannot believe the price again. I cannot believe that price. It's extraordinary, and just taste it. It is really nice Mosul Riesling. It's on the sweet side, 4.99, and it's proper Mosul Riesling. It's really good. In the wine tour, at the moment the theme is Italy. We've got an Arnais. Arnais is pretty unusual. Lovely fragrant floral grape from Piemonte and we have an Arnais. It's beautiful wine. It's this lovely fragrant dry white which I would highly recommend. Um, we've also got there's both a Frascati and an Orvieto. They are good. Clean. They've got lovely flavour. They're really good wines. So so those are all good. In the reds there's a Nero di Troia which is a grape that you, you don't often come across these days which I think is lovely. And then finally Again, something different. We've got a Hungarian red, uh, a Bikova from a producer called Boliki. Now, Bikova may not mean anything to you when I say that, but if I said bull's blood, then I think it would mean something to you. This is a wine that traditionally would have been called bull's blood, but these days they prefer not to, so they call it Bikova, and it's really worth trying. It's this lovely, juicy, quite savoury um, red from Hungary. All these wine tour wines would be between six and eight pounds. That's where I think, from a little point of view, we can identify real value and find genuine personality in wines at a reasonable price point. So it is, as Richard was saying, that we're coming back to, to, to the core, what lies at the heart of finding value in wine. That sort of sweet spot. That is loads to try, Rich. We're going to have to uh, narrow it down a little bit. I um, all, we've got our, all of them. Well, our work is cut out, uh, as I thought it might be. Oliver will be writing tasting notes on all the wines. Absolutely. And you're handing your ho- homework to Richard uh, B. And we'll see how you do. Yeah. We do owe huge thanks, Richard. I mean, just incredible to be with you. Your knowledge, your friendship, your approach, your values, which is why we want to invite you on to cover this specific topic. Just huge thank you very much. Yes, indeed. May I add mine to that? You're definitely a friend of the wine list and uh, have a similar ethos to introducing numpties like myself to wine as well as experts. Thank you so much. Well, many thanks to you. I think what you're doing is critical. I love the way you're approaching this in terms of being useful to the shopper. That's what it's all about. I look forward to hearing your feedback on the wines, Oliver. Okay, well, this is the moment of truth. Rich, I have three whites in front of me. I'm a little bit nervous, but it's mostly excitement, really, because I've got to, for the other Richard, I've got to prepare, what, how many pages of notes? I think we sort of agreed you were going to write an essay on each wine that uh, Richard B. was recommending. So what we've actually done, as you alluded to, we would need to pare down his recommended list, which we have done, to six wines, three whites, three reds. And we're going to do a little bit of an exercise here. I know the wines and the order in which we're going to taste them. This isn't going to be a totally blind tasting experiment because obviously we've st- we're still dealing with your score from season one for the blind tasting. <laughs> yeah, I've got to have something to build on. To build on. So the three wines that we're tasting, just so you're aware of the three, but yeah. this is not the order necessarily that we're tasting in. We're going to, you heard Richard talk about that extraordinary, in his words, Riesling from Germany. Yeah. So that is in our little flight of three. Based on what we know from the Riesling Epoll, the most characteristic thing about Riesling is what? What structural thing does Riesling have loads of? Because it's in northern Germany. Yeah. Uh, is it sort of uh, acidic? Absolutely. Yeah. I would suggest that if you've noticed that one of the three wines has got really obvious acidity and a bit of tartness possibly, that could be the reason, but let's see. Also, uh, oh, Richard B. mentioned how little rotates, not from their core range, but these other wines that come in every two months. And yes, you see them in right. baskets and they change every couple of months. And, and Italy 
has been the current focus. So we are picking up one of the Italian wines. A great variety I don't know very well, actually, so I'm going to be really interested to taste it. And it's the uh, Arnais from Piemonte, northwest Italy. So our friend Louisa would be very excited. She would. She's excited. No, and that's a normal state of being. Exactly. Yeah. She would be very excited and also telling us off at the same time. It's supposed to be delicate and light and floral. Let's see if we can spot that one. The other white we've got is from New Zealand, but it's not the obvious New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc because we all know what they taste like. Pinot Gris. Are you familiar with Pinot Gris? I am. I've had a, the old Pinot Gris in my time. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, absolutely. Good. And just to give you a clue, I mean, generally New Zealand Pinot Gris is definitely fruity and will have a more body, more texture than a Sauvignon Blanc, which can be quite thin, again, because of the acidity, going back to that acidity thing. So of the three, we should have one with a backbone of Germanic acidity. We should have something light and floral that reminds us of Louisa and something from New Zealand that's not Sauvignon Blanc, but probably is fruity and kind of a bit more intensity on the palate. So should we have a go? Yeah, I, I think you've done your homework brilliantly here because I really should be able to differentiate here. What right. good fun, actually. I'm now not nervous at all. Good. I'm just about to have a drink with my old let's, chum. Let's have a little ching ching. Wine number one. I imagine they're all pretty pale lemon anyway. Is it nice and pale colour? Uh, they are pale. And, uh, the middle one seems to be the least pale. Okay. And probably number three is the most pale. So this is the middle paleness, number one. Okay. Shall I stay a bit? Okay. By the way, folks, all these little wines we're tasting, we'll give the full list at the end. They're all These three white wines are all under £10, okay? We're talking 4 99 6 that sort of thing, okay? Seeing if we can find quality at a low price point here with our weights. Totally drinkable. It's not as full as flavours as some of them we've had. Oh, I'm not doing that. I should do the Slurpee. Quite pleasing, not much on the nose, I have to say. Agreed. Pretty quiet, pretty subdued. On the palate, definitely light, isn't it? Very much so. Quite delicate, would you say? Yes, I definitely would say delicate. I'm not even I'm not even being being <laughs> the witness mm. is not being led. I agree. So that is light. It's how acidic is it? Are you getting real fizz of acidity? No. No, I'm not. So what so using a bit of what, what doctors would call imagine you're a doctor taking a, a history from a patient, they call it differential diagnosis start ruling things out. Yeah. Did you rule anything out? So I was going to rule the uh, Riesling out okay. on the basis of acidity. Let's okay. go number two. Oh, this is great fun. So number two, you were saying, is this a little bit more colour or a bit less colour? Little more. Okay. They're very, very pale yellow. Oh, that seems sweeter. What are you tasting here? Not Tell acid either. And smells and taste, remember? Again, pretty light, pretty delicate on the nose. Yeah, I was going to say floral. We've gone from a nose of, on the scale of 0 to 10, we've gone from 0.1, nose number one, to about one. Uh, Yeah. Mm. Oh, golly, I'm thinking New Zealand for that one. Why? Because you said it would have a little bit more to it, body-wise and texture-wise, than... um, Pretty standard. So I'm sort of thinking Pinot Gris on the two. About the how do you find the acidity? More or less than number one? Oh, uh, no, that's not. God, it's like having your eyes tested. It Oops, is. Sorry, Richard. That's all right, mate. Is this side better or this? This or this? I can see bugger all. I can see F.A. with either. Please, can we move on? I'm getting a little bit of a citrus zing here. Okay. There's a bit of acidity here. But then remember, all wines have acidity. Yeah, It's just that that first one, I think you ruled out Riesling, and I I think possibly that was a good observation. We really need to look at wine number three and then compare all three. So let's go to number three. Oh, oh dear. It's smelling like the first one. Damn. I I was hoping someone was going to leap out the glass at me and say... And the thing is, when you're looking at inexpensive wines here, they're probably the thing they're going to lack is intensity. So mm-hmm. the fact that they're not leaping out of the glass is kind of unsurprising given their price points. Ah, right. So, so this is massively more fruity than mm. the other two. Enormously so. To the fact that it tastes quite sweet. Mm. Interesting to say about sweetness, because let's go back and just concentrate on sweetness. Wine number one, mm-hmm. dry as a bone. Correct. And nice because of it, actually. Absolutely. Wine number two, off dry, I would say. So perception of sweetness still finishes when the tastes disappear from your mouth. Mm. Finishes dry, starts off a tiny bit sweet. And number three, mm, even more on a sweetness. But again, actually a bit more sweetness at first entry, as it were. But again, it's fading away now. It has a slightly longer finish, number three. Yeah, it does. And, and number three also, you notice the intensity of the fruit. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. And it's now drying on the finish. So again, off dry. So the wines, one, two and three are dry, off dry and off dry. Where are we getting the most acidity out of those three? Right. It's not number three for me. It's definitely not number three. So I'm going to taste them again. 
because I might be changing my mind about acidity. I think it might be number one now. So I'm starting to change my mind about whether that could be the Riesling. How did you find the acidity in wine number two? You just skipped number Similar. One. Can I help you out here, Rob? Watch this. Wine number one. Not much saliva dripping into the spittoon. Wine number two. God, this is going to be absolutely awful to watch. Let's see. Ooh. Oh, that's absolutely gross. But, but scientifically, a bit more. Co quite a big dribble there, wine yeah. number two. Mm. Number three? A little bit, but not much. Which one of those three wines Two. did you see the most saliva? Two. By country mile. By a country mile. So differential diagnosis? My differential diagnosis then, I will go one Italian, two Riesling, three the uh, New Zealand, I think. Pinot Gris. The Gris. Ollie, you've gone from 0% in season one to 100% yes! in season yes! two. Yes! I have, you have no idea how thrilled I am. My hand was held very gently and delicately through that path, but I got the New Zealand one really quick, yeah. almost instantly, and I'd, I'd ruled it out. And then I went back and, and did my differential acid, and I would have probably gone for two, but seeing saliva dribble out of your mouth was both quite revolting, but also uh, instructive. Really quite instructive. And now I've tasted two again, I get it. So I think I can't give myself 100% because I was really guided very well. But I'm happy to give myself, say, 60% in a B. I'm over the moon with the result there, Richard. And thank you for guiding me. Well, only a little bit of guiding. We got there. But again, let's just look at these price points. The Riesling, which is a classic Riesling, this word tipisti, it really does taste like a Mosul Riesling. It's light, it's floral, it's got that Riesling acidity, it's fruity, it's a bit off dry, bit of residual sugar there. In our Riesling app, we said often you get, and particularly in the cooler parts of Germany, like the Mosul, you have a bit of residual sugar there to balance the really high natural acidity because of the very cool climate there. So yeah, and it really does taste decent. Four pounds <gasps> and 99 pence. The Riesling is. Yeah. That is absolutely extraordinary. Well done, Richard. And also yeah. well done, Little, well, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. That's amazing. That really is. 4.99, 10 10.5% alcohol. So it's low alcohol on the low side as well. Very good. So that was, that, that was the Riesling. Number two, right? That was number two. Wine number one. This is... Um, oh, you're right. Light floral. Light and floral. Said. I should have remembered Louisa. Light floral, but exciting. Mm. Delicate and light and floral. It's not... You know, remember when we were complaining slightly about the Gordon's house? Mm. No disrespect to Gordon, the greatest yeah. wine bar in the world. It hasn't got any of that wateriness no. that the Gordon's got, on, got slightly on my nerves about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This was another thing. You've, again, I'll, you know... Little by little, you're making great strides. <laughs> and um, it really... I'll be the judge of that. Because <laughs> the general point I wanted to mention with, with the reds, when we get to the reds as well, is how do we assess quality here? Richard talked about wines having character. And can you get character when they're five pounds a bottle or something? For another one for me is intensity, particularly with yeah. fruit. If a fruit lacks intensity, it's going to be watery. And so therefore, I've got my watery ometer out. And I'm not, I can't actually get, find... The, I don't find these three wines too watery. Not at all. Not compared to... It was the first thing I thought of when I tasted the Gordon's house. And I, I didn't want to use the word watery. It didn't sound like a, a word that you, you, you should use. But it was. It was. It was like... I used to have my Ribena very strong. Mm. My mother used to not like that. Neither did my dentist. But I used to have it, have it quite strong. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Nothing worse than watery fruit juices. Oh, it is awful. Yeah. Rather yeah. have plain water. Correct. Mm. Than something pretending to be juice. Yeah. Um, and mm. so constant Battle, the uh, concentration yeah. of my Ribena with my mother. Uh, God God bless her. Still mm. going strong. But yeah, that's right. You might as well just have water to refresh you because if you want to taste something, you might as well have a decent slug of it. Wine number three, which you you copped immediately. Yeah, that was nice. I was starting to get a bit worried and upset, slightly tearful. What I was trying to do is work out the difference in acidity. So I was concentrating probably too much on, that one, on one quality, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but I was very pleased that they weren't watery. But then I got a slug of this and I thought, New Zealand. Absolutely. So the Italian... Wine number one, the, the Italian, seven ninety nine, that sort of thing, eight pounds. So we got from eight pounds wine one, five pounds for the Riesling wine two, um, six ninety nine, seven pounds okay. for the Pinot Gris, six pounds ninety nine. It's from Gisborne, that's in the, that's a wine region in the North Island of New Zealand. It's got the most alcohol of the three wines, thirteen percent, but you know that's perfectly manageable and again that's contributing a bit to the weight it's definitely got a Is full it? amount so yeah. all these words that you keep using you keep using weight and full and balance i'm starting to understand what you mean and you can intersp intersperse them with words like watery which which describe it as well but when you say full yeah. and i taste this i know exactly what you mean there's more going on there's simply more taste more to more it. flavor <laughs> more to flavor. it yeah 
gosh, I know what you're going to do next. You're going to say in terms of value because the the, the Fiverr Rhine, uh, that's a Riesling, isn't it? The one yeah. that cost It blows me away in terms of value. But then two quid more, actually, in the great scheme of things, is not a lot of pence. It's two hundred. Yeah, I would, you know, have a. Um, Richard B would calculate the value here. I would give these all equal value ratings. Oh, I right, I, I okay. Think, I think they are all top value. The difference, okay, for some people, the difference between four ninety nine and six ninety nine might be really important. In which case, there you go. There's your reasoning. Take it home. Yeah. Absolutely. But for two pounds more, I'm not saying it's a better wine. I'm just saying it is of equivalent value with its, frankly, its intensity. It's lovely fruit. It's there's nothing dumbed down or kind of bargain basement or deep discounter, which little is. That's the generic term for Aldi and little deep discounters. It's just remarkable. This is genuinely good quality wine for well under a tenner. I'm really blown away. I might even stick my neck out and go. I would buy the Pinot Gris. It's sort of the middle yeah. price point, but it's so delicious so full so fruity so tasty so it appeals to me because obviously taste comes into value as well doesn't it uh, indeed and the other thing we picked up as well is that with the pinot gris it definitely lasted the longest on the palate had a good finish yeah and it also had the best first impression as well it sort of it sort of exploded into your gob and said hello here i am i'm from new zealand that's people from new zealand do so far so good i really hope we uh, keep this keep keep this going keep 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 this going also at the moment three out of three it sounds like a rock song Three, three ain't bad, but it's but it's not. Three out of three is really good. <laughs> I think meatloaf, maybe? Yeah. Meatloaf. Two out of three ain't bad. Yeah, right? I don't know what the one that was uh, he'd missed out on. It's probably staying with the lady, I'd have thought. Ah. If I know my meat. And your loaf. So, Red's time all. Here, again, following Richard B's recommendations, three little wines. Two out of the three are under £10 and one is over £10. So we might just want to explore that. Can we obviously smell, taste a leap up in price point, maybe mm. with one of the wines? So that's one bit of your homework. Or... Ooh, of the three wines here, a Pinotage, that is a black grape variety. Let's face it, unique to South Africa. That's where they created it. Pinotage is often red fruity, can be a bit black fruit when it gets right, but look out for red fruits. Red fruit. Red fruits. <laughs> you know, red fruits versus black, I really get, makes me anxious. Can be a bit smoky, can be a bit Bonfire-y. What so we bonfire-y? might bonfire Smoky, smoky. Oh, I see what you mean. Smoky, right, right, really right, right. smoky. So if there's something really smoky, it could be the Pinotage. Richard really raved, and I'm dying to try it, a Chianti Reserva, £6.49. By the way, the Pinotage, £4.49, the least expensive wine today. Chianti, £6.49, and Richard raved about it because he said it's paraphrasing him, but along the lines of it's proper wine, it's got tertiary, yeah. i.e. it's got bottle-aging, it's got some sort of character maybe dried fruits potentially a bit leathery those kind of things you associate with good bordeaux let's see if we can spot that it's great when you said that it's a proper wine proper you knew wine. he you knew he meant it and the other wine which he mentioned and it is a bordeaux and this is a nice link again back to your par up in yorkshire yeah yeah and there's saint emilion grand cru just a quickie uh, saint emilion is an important uh, village in the bordeaux region it's on what's called the right bank because there's right bank and left bank which did your head in when you looked at the chez bruce um yeah. wine list you Individual remember your bits of a river that's it's it it's crazy what's going on and this is the right bank and this is where you tend to get more merlot uh, rather than cabernet sauvignon because it's all to do with soil and terroir and stuff let's not go into that we're tasting a saint emilion grand cru the grand cru is important because only the better saint emilion wines can be classified as grand cru so there must be a certain quality level here it's 14 pounds and 99 oh, pence wow. so clearly that's a massive leap up you know i'm tripling the price of the riesling let's not get obsessed with the price of the wines no. let's focus on the quality of the wines and a bordeaux is going to be kind of um a saint-emilion grand cru it's a young one 20, 20 2020 expect some kind of plummy fruit expect some cedar vanilla notes from the oak maturation this wine will have had in the winery something a bit more complex we'll see oh blimey so the anxiety level's just gone up a little touch so we've got a chianti we've got a south african new grape and then we've got a, a relatively classic claret which i should be able to remember from my childhood i'm worried that um, my differential diagnosis is going to be different but um on my experience of the whites i'm not worried that i won't be able to see differences in the wines i'm going to take if you, taste if you see what i mean yes so wine number one oliver let's just smell it let's taste it let's discuss it nice ruby color yeah they're all very similar okay. plenty on the nose plenty of what on the nose right yeah ah, uh, it's red fruit uh... oh dear oh dear Red fruit, black fruit conundrum, I don't call it. 
Well, sometimes you get both, so it's fine. Could be a bit of both, but it smells mm. quite. It smells like it's what I call. I, I always make my students titter sometimes when, believe it or not, Lee, I can be funny. And I say to my students, I think we need to refer to the pl- the cherry plum axis. Oh, no, I like the sound of that. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, very good. Because when fruit gets ripe, when grapes get ripe, the flavours they can produce often cross over from red fruit into black fruit. And I think it's really useful to know, particularly as one can find red cherries and black cherry and red plum and black plum, when you're getting this kind of, is it red, is it black? Let's let's defer, refer or defer to the cherry plum axis. That's pretty safe ground. I think that's where we are here. Oh right, okay. So that makes me feel a little bit better because it, it, it if you're saying we're on the axis, that tends to mean there's a bit of bit of both. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go for that. Oh, I haven't tasted it yet. Oh golly. Oh no, it's happened again. One of those adjectives I don't have because there's a taste in there which I can't describe. I think what we're getting here is quite spicy. I think. I think it's fruity and spicy. A bit peppery. Gosh, it's got a decent finish, and it's a really interesting wine. So then let's not make a judgment call. I think it's clearly got some complexity. Remember what Richard B said, oh, it's really telling. Okay, of course, wine professionals do this a lot, but, you know, he's never tasting wine in isolation. And I'm not saying, you know, we all want to analyse wine. We just want to open and have a nice glass of wine. I get that, of course. <laughs> but sometimes it's fun when you're trying to understand wine is taste two wines or three wines side by side, which is what we're doing here. From that point, you can then start to do differential diagnosis. So wine number two. Old. I think you're quite right, by the way, because that Pinot Gris is the one I now have stuck in my mind. Because what I'm trying to do is create a register of things. that If I see on a wine list, I go, ooh. That's quite nice, um, you know, to get down that road of being able to pick up a wine list with confidence, which is what this is all about. So, differential, okay. Absolutely right. Okay, tannin the first one. Yeah. So, how different, oh, stylistically, I t- taste-wise, is wine number two to wine oh, number right, one. There's a sort of bitterness in there, in number two, right? Mm-hmm. It's probably got a bigger flavour, I find. I'm going to try it again, just a little tiny sip. I think there's more going on in two. But the finish of number one... It was still finishing as I was sipping number two, which I'm sure is not the best way to taste wine. Oh, dear. You picked up on a good point, though, because what wine number two has is a bit more fruit intensity. Black fruit, uh, red fruits and black fruits, cherries, the cherry plum axis yeah. again, I would yeah. say, actually. Oh, uh, right. OK. Just make a note, point in the sand here, Ol, that wine number two's is much fruitier than wine number one. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, got a riper fruit, riper fruity flavour than number one. And ripeness often equates to climate and warmth. So I would suggest that number two has come from a warmer climate than number one. <laughs> Interesting. Just a thought. Tell me about the nose on number three, Ol. It seems less than the others. When you do smell it, even if it's a bit less, what things can you smell on the nose? Well, I was going to say licorice, but I just yeah? think that... Really? I agree. That's good. My God, it is licorice. And there is fruit. Mm-hmm. Can I say... I don't know. I just don't want to say the wrong thing. We haven't talked about oak. Sometimes, well, white wines too. None of the white wines we had, all had seen any oak mm-hmm. okay oh my goodness me i would say potentially all three of these wines have seen some oak and oak gives you these slightly woody notes a slight vanilla cedar smell slightly mm. spicy do you have any thoughts about that in terms of nose or palate with number three or any of the other wines i really don't want to say vanilla if i don't believe it hang on i tell you what i do believe and i'm going to try the other two this comparison thing is such fun mm. it really is Please, beginners, don't take too much of a big glug out of your sample. Make sure you have several uh, glugs to go um, because it's, it's such fun. It's a really good way. Richard, again, was um, spot on on this. And I love the way he goes that you can't be a good taster of wine unless you know what a cheap wine tastes like. There's not a hint of snobbery with him. It was just saying um, you can only really appreciate a good wine. Of all the wines in all the places. In all the world, she mm. walked into mine. She drank mine. The one that reminds me of home is number three. Claret, Yorkshire. Okay. Father. He's disapproving looks. Okay. And what reminds you of that? Wow. Why, did, why did you make that connection? I think they're all tanniny, though. I'm not sure whether I should be expecting one to be less so. Oliver, you're making great steps. Ah, Again, right. I'd say more than little by little. I mean, really a pace now. <laughs> why number three? Really quite tannic, isn't it? My gums yeah, yeah. are really dry. Yeah, totally. So we've got some high tannins there, which would we ex- we would expect from like wines potentially like good quality Chianti, but has high tannins often. Saint-Emilion Grand Cru, often you would expect high tannins. I'd say the highest tannins of the three is number three. 
Yeah, I think it might be the tannins that's clicking my memory, you know, Rich. I can only say this should be the claret. And it is. Oh, my word. Oh, it's so nice. It's so nice. Would I have detected this as the most expensive? I, I fancy I might, actually. It's so, it's just, it's, it's home. It's lovely. I'm back in Yorkshire with father's disapproving glances. That's it. Well, you're gonna, well, you've got my disapproving glance now, because your, your homework is not yet done, Oliver. We still <laughs> have to analyse wines one and two. And I still want to come back to three, because the Santa Minot, as we've explained, is by far the most expensive wine. So I'll be tasting the quality there. Well, let's just deduce. We've got a Chianti and we've, and we've got um, a Pinotage. And a Pinotage is often a bit smoky, I said. Right. Okay. A, a bit a bit barbecuey, a bit fruity because it comes from a warm climate like South Africa. Chianti generally is kind of red, sour cherries and plums. May well have a bit of oak, a bit of dried fruit possibly. I said one of them was sour. I think it might have been number two. Damn it, I'm getting confused now. I'm in a good position. I don't even mind if I get this wrong. Well, I mean, you've got 66%. I think we'll let you pass. Yeah. Mm. Pass on to the... You have now qualified for the beginner's course. <laughs> because... <laughs> It turns out you have some level of sentiment. They're both as sour as each other, as yeah. I can tell. Oh, number one is more fruity. Number two is more closed. Mm-hmm. Decision time, Oliver. Time and what is it? Tide, I Tide, think. Yeah. yeah. Hi, Louisa. Yep. Wait for no man. Shit, I've forgotten which is which. So, what am I looking for? Fruity and oaky, or are they not the same? Well, they could both be oaky. I would say one is a bit riper fruit than the other, and one may be slightly more Christmas cakey, slightly more dried fruit than the other one. Okay, fine. I'm going to go for it. One is South African, two is the Chianti. Excellent. Wrong. Oh, no. It was so close. Oh. Well done. You've got four out of six. Yeah. But I'm, what, what is so nice is that the claret just popped up. It said, hello, I'm the claret. Remember me from... Uh, Bullion Wolf Tales, circa 1980. Lovely. It's a whole new world. This comparative diagnosis. This is this is the business. Right. Yeah, it's the only way you learn. It really is. So I was doing really well. I stumbled at the last moment on the Chianti versus the South Africa. Sorry, remind me of the grape in the South the Africa. Pinotage. The Pinotage in South Africa. Let's see if we can reverse engineer. What am I looking for in the Chianti? Sniffing and smelling the Chianti now. It smells like plums and it smells a bit dried the fruit not just fresh fruit it reminds me slightly of christmas cakey fruit i just have to echo richard b six pounds 49 this is a really serious wine (laughs) there is nothing let's patronize it and say it's really good this is genuinely really good if i was tasting this and didn't know the price i would think this was probably 15 to 20 pounds. What do you think of? Yeah, there's no water. It's like maybe I was a, a, a better taster when I was eight years old drinking my Ribena than I thought. This is the right level of Ribena because if, if you go, this is what Louisa said, if you go too much fruit, it's sticky and horrible. Mm. So maybe the Ribena test was the is the, is the is the classic. So watery, meh, might as well have water. Too fruit and sickly, horrible. This is in the Goldilocks zone, refruit. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing about number two, I don't know if you can get this. Is there is um pinotage can be a bit interesting on the nose there's def- definitely something a bit smoky it smells like ground coffee slightly chocolatey smoky have you still got some Saint-Emilion Grand Cru yeah I have I'm going to declare Yorkshire wine partial <laughs> victory <laughs> although the Chianti and the South African I no I don't think I don't think I'm there yet in terms of me I differentiate those okay that's right the claret Piled out the glass at me like an old friend. So clarity at last. <laughs> exactly. And I'd love to share this with, with Dad. He'd love this. What I really want you to, obviously, bring you back lovely memories, which is great, Ol. And again, this is why, how much do we love wine with its associations? We've talked about this with music, with memories, conversations, family, friends. Can we really feel two things? The price, because remember, price and value are two different things. Does this taste like a wine that's twice the monetary price of the other wines, and do we feel it's better value in terms of quality? It's such a fantastic question, because this is all about value. And I have to say, I mean, it has a personal association for me. I have to say, no, these are subjective things. The amount of pleasure. It should be an SI unit of pleasure, mm. like the, uh, the, the the chuckle. Can we measure our dopamine yeah, expression the, in our brains? Yeah, that's the way, yeah. The, mm. So it, that's about 13 dopes, <laughs> and the other one's about 10 dopes. No, 
No. So if we're talking about value, those other two were so delicious and so much fun to kind of analyze and compare. I got the comparison wrong in the end, which, which probably says something as well. Is the other one, which is my favorite, can't say, is it double in terms of, uh, no, it's not. It's not. You can get uh, an enormous amount of pleasure out of those other two. What was the price points again of the Chianti and the South African? The Cimarosa Pinotage. I'm sorry, I overpriced it earlier. £4.25. Wow. It just come all that way <laughs> and, st- and, and be taxed. And still they're making money yeah. by charging £4.25. Yeah, well, that's a good question. Are they make- I hope they're making money because and we've just had a budget. So expect that to go up a bit. Basically on a simple bottle of wine with this percentage of alcohol which is 14% alcohol by the way oh, that backs up that wow, kind of really? that backs up that warm climate coming yeah, from a yeah. warm place remember your wine um, your viticulture ep in season one the more warmth the more heat the more sugar in the grapes the more booze of course that fermentation 14% here when you consider that three quid of that is tax they've got to shift a lot of this wine to make any money on it imagine the margins on this bottle that's not a business I would like to be in you know it's yeah. terrifying terrifyingly fine margins and then you get a bad year or some mix-up or there's a supply chain issue oh terrible i'm already thinking okay we've done this for the podcast but just for my own personal use i'm, I'm gonna go to little and buy yeah, some more wines that's exactly what i was thinking uh, even more so for me who uh, um is just sort of starting out on this that clara is amazing but i still would be very happy with that chianti and in fact the um the south african wine as well at that lower price and you know what i'll i know it sounds a bit wishy-washy to say everyone's won. There's no losers here, but there literally are no losers. I agree. I think in terms of value, they're all brilliant value. And I'm going to stick my neck out and go for the Pinotage, actually. It's so close to the Chianti for my uncultured tongue. And it is, gosh, less than half, so much less than half of the Claret. I am going to say congratulations, South Africa Pinotage. I hope you're making money. That's the one for me value-wise. And I tell you what, Ol, you know, of course, I'm drawn to Bordeaux. I love wine, teach wine, lived in France near Bordeaux. I totally understand and respect the quality of that Saint-Emilion Grand Cru, totally. But in terms of what I'm going to do, I could buy three bottles of the Pinotage. That's the test. And frankly... The three-bottle test. The three-bottle test. So hats off eight Ol for improving on, remarkably, on his score from season one. 0% to 66.6. You're in merit terms. You're not quite at distinction level, but you're beyond the ordinary pass. At, oh, I'll take that. With, with uh, my, yeah, my wine classes. So again, shows progress. In summary, Oliver, well done, dear boy. Your favourite white and your favourite red, well, I think we know. It's the Pinot Gris from New Zealand for you and the... Pinotage, is that right? Well, I think in terms of value, yes. And if I chose to, I would choose the Riesling. I like the, yeah. the Pinot Gris very much, but the Riesling was just fabulous. And that was the Mosul. That was beautiful. 4 And again, as we've just said, love all those three reds, but well done, uh, South Africa, the Pinotage. Yeah, congratulations, Africa. Yeah. You're producing great ones. Yeah.